This is Trackside with Kirk Cavan and Kevin Lee. Here we go from T.O. Herder controls the field. That black and yellow car is on the inside. Driver's right. Green, green, green. Dixon is going to duck right in behind. Newgarden takes a look. Nothing there. Rossi trying to sweep around the outside. And we got a car up against the outside wall just in turn number two. It's Takuma Sato. Meanwhile, the leaders head to turn three. Colton Hernum on and off pit road. Nick Gilman, you saw the battle with Scott Dixon. Yep, uh, ultimately, Mark, on track, it's a pass for eighth, but Scott Dixon was able to roar ahead of Colton Herta. When this all cycles out, looks like Scott Dixon's going to be your new race leader. Rosenquist putting the pressure on. And he's looking to make a move to the inside. Here comes Felix Rosenquist. He'll dive deep. The two nearly make contact. They do, and that will send Alexander Rossi into the wall of the exit of turn number three. We have a full course caution. Alexander Rossi, Felix Rosenquist, that contact will bring out the yellow flag. Below around the outside with his teammate, Erickson and Below might have bumped, still trying to squeeze through. Erickson maintains the position. Don't forget Road America, what happened between these two. Contact Almost turned there. him. Contact there, got the eight very loose, managed to hang on to it, keep it off the wall. Oh, looks like he's got something on his front right tire. I'm talking about Scott Dixon. We'll see Scott Dixon as he works his way around is definitely off pace. Colton Hurd is closing in. It's about a six-car length advantage for Scott Dixon through turn number six. And things are tightening up behind Scott Dixon as whatever it was on that tire, I think, blew off after he worked his way through turn number eight. Scott Dixon with a couple of turns to go with Herna and Rosenquist closing down to 1.2 seconds. One more turn to go for Scott Dixon. Whatever that bullet was, it looked like he's going to dodge it as Herna and Rosenquist try to keep pace, but they're not going to catch it. Four wins at Toronto, but more significantly, history made. Win number 52. Scott Dixon is tied. Mario Andretti for the second most wins in IndyCar history. Dixon has done it in Toronto. It's trackside, I think. Can you hear us, Sam? Okay, it says I'm not connected, but I am. Uh, the Magical Mystery Tour continues throughout North America. I am already in Des Moines, Iowa, and thought I was going straight from Toronto. Welcome to the big show tonight. Kevin Lee, Kurt Cavan, Sam Rumsta is in our MS Communications Worldwide Headquarters. Highlights courtesy of IndyCar Radio and Peacock with NBC Sports from the Honda Indy Toronto from this past Sunday, and we're ready to do it all again coming up, not once, but twice this weekend with the Hy-Vee Iowa doubleheader Saturday and Sunday afternoon here on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan and also on NBC and Peacock. Uh, plenty to get into tonight, much to cover from the race at Toronto. We've still got ideas and possibilities on the future of Alex Pillow and the number 10 car and in what Pillow's camp could be, uh, could they be trying to use as an out? Uh, NASCAR is headed to the streets of Chicago. We'll get into that and much more at Kevin Lee 23 at Kurt Cabin on social media, Twitter for us tonight. If you have something um, fun weekend in Toronto, it was good to be back after a few years away. Always one of our favorite cities to visit and a racetrack, Kurt, that always produces a lot of entertainment. And, you know, it's kind of silly to say, or it's, I guess, interesting to say that there was not a pass for the lead on track all day. The exchange with Dixon winning the race was the pit exchange Yet, I think most of us still felt this race was very compelling. What did you think? 
I thought it was very good, as usual. Uh, you know, Toronto is is a place where it seems like there ought to be a lot of carnage, and we have had some multi-car crashes that, you know, collected four to five cars in a single accident. But, but largely, I went back through the record books. I mean, there were, what, 35 races prior to this one. And I think, you know, largely been pretty clean. Yeah, we'll have, you know, a couple uh, dust ups. And for as tight as it has been on the racetrack, I think guys have had a really good uh, presence about themselves. And it's been it's been really fun. The other thing I would say is that Paul Kelly and I on IndyCar.com last week when uh, before the race week, actually the week uh, before, kind of did a did a what's our favorite fantasy track look like like where are your favorite corners in racing and one of the ones i chose because it really is is fun for me and that's turn three at toronto you know it's a long down that lakeshore boulevard it's a long run to turn three it's uh it's got the grandstands on driver's left and then as you make that sharp turn onto turn three it's it's uh uphill and off camber and I got to think the sensation of for drivers is um, it, it is really interesting because you're kind of fading to the left and you're trying to turn to the right. And that is where if we didn't see the pass for the win, we saw maybe the signature moment. And we're going to get into the should uh, Felix Rosenquist have been penalized for contact with Alexander Rossi. But that moment right there in the turn that I believe is is uh, one of the best in IndyCar, certainly for a street circuit. You know, I just love I love the Lakeshore Boulevard and I love turn three. And, you know, we can talk about the rest of the racetrack. You know, it has some challenges on pit road right now. Uh, that'll get fixed in the future, but uh, ho- hopefully. And right now that uh, that turn three is I can watch that about every day of the week. It, it is cool. And and the elevation, I had forgotten about. Maybe I have never done that track walk before, but I took a pace car ride with, with Hinch uh, in, in their Honda video on, I guess it was Thursday, maybe Friday evening. And it's not a huge uphill, but it's a really quick twist. And it, it does add a little bit of intrigue to the track. And it's just so tight, so difficult. So we'll get into some of those questions and whether penalties should be handed out but we really need to start and just spend some moments aside from all the drama let's just take a moment to talk about scott dixon and win number 52 you and i have been around this sport for a little while now and yes there's the foit number 67 but the the number 52 the win mark for mario andretti was one of those that i don't know that any of us thought was ever going to be matched again and here this guy has done it and probably isn't very close to being done if he doesn't want to be close to being done. Yeah, I've been covering this sport uh, really since 1988. Uh, was in Phoenix when when Mario got to 52, won the last of his races uh, in 1993. You know, there's a couple things about the Dixon record that, or the Dick, Dixon accomplishment uh, that is, is pretty impressive. I mean, 52, uh, you know, that number is largely dependent on you know, have you had a good car year after year? And he has. And how many races are staged each year? You know, there are some years where there were only nine or ten races a year. And so that would have, you know, the guys in that era, had that era continued, might have 
you know, never had a shot at 52. But but that's not the points I want to make. The the two that really stand out for me, six, uh, 18 consecutive, excuse me, 18 consecutive seasons with at least one win. Now think about that. That is, you know, a driver's career in most cases is never even going to get to halfway to 18 seasons, let alone winning a race every year for 18 straight years. And, you know, I think the other thing I went back and looked, Toronto was not a re was a repeat track for him. He's won there, you know, in years past. So I think that's now four wins for him at Toronto, but he's won at 25 different racetracks. I think that's a, that really speaks to his versatility uh, the only driver cl- among the current drivers uh, who's even close to that is is Will Power with 22. But 25 different racetracks to have one on shows you the versatility. Uh, you know, we always talk about this this series as being, you know, the the most, uh, you know, challenging and diverse in, in all of motorsports. For him to have won on big tracks, uh, big ovals, short tracks, uh, you know, the street circuits, the road courses – it doesn't matter. Train tracks, whatever, however you want to lay out the circuit, uh, Scott Dixon's going to perform. Yes, he's been with a good team all those years, and actually kind of with noticing how close uh, Ganassi Racing is to challenging Team Penske for most season championships. It's pretty close. Uh, but but Dixon, year after year, race after race, circuit after circuit, depending on where you're at, it doesn't matter. He's a challenge for the for the win for the series championship, and it's not surprising that he's got to fifty two. He's going to pass Mario at some point. I don't know if he can get to sixty seven, but I wouldn't think sixty is out of the question. You know, and it could be easily twenty straight seasons with a win because so he won his first race when he was just barely more than a kid in two thousand one with Pac West. Didn't win the next year when the team folded midway through and he joined Ganassi, won the IRL championship and I think maybe three races in 2003, all ovals in 04, still all ovals. They were underpowered. You know, it's a spec series. And that's one of the few years where somebody didn't really have a chance and the Toyotas didn't have a chance. So that was the season. So if it just would have been comparable, you'd have to think he would have won a race that year in the Ganassi car, and they started to figure it out by the end of 05. By the 06, they went to Toyota, and they were good. And, you know, he's been off and running since then. And I think, and I know this point's been made before, what also stands out is that he's won in so many different cars. Now, I know it's, so you can still make the argument about the versatility of the guys that started in the early 60s, Foyt being the perfect example, and Mario as well, that started in roadsters uh and eventually ended up in you know downforce with uh ground effects and you know modern indie cars that's what mario and foyt both finished it up in so yes the cars from when they started to when they finished looked far different but still the different generations of the cars uh, throughout the years and he's been good in each of them he's won with many different engineers maybe appropriate that he had a fill-in engineer as his lead engineer this weekend with chris simmons filling in for michael cannon uh, probably not a huge deal because simmons is still there he's uh, overseeing or helping to oversee the entire engineering operation so he's very much involved but just uh, just amazing and the other thing that comes to mind is i don't think scott said anything about this or maybe you did see anything in the the post 
race press conference, but maybe it was Dario or it was someone else, one of his friends saying, you know, trying to, to support him uh, about comments saying that Dixon should retire, you know, enough of that and so forth. And I guess my question would be is, I've not heard that. Now, maybe if you're reading all the message boards, someone has suggested that. But, Kurt, I'm not sure that I've heard anyone say that it might be time for Dixon. We've wondered when he might decide I'm no longer interested or move on. But I'm not sure that anyone with any rationale that's paying attention thought that this had passed him by at this point. I don't think they they thought that it passed him by, but I think, and I could be mistaken, I think he was asked the question, you know, where do you stand on that? Because I think that's a natural question. You know, he's going to be, he celebrates a birthday on Friday. He's, uh, you know, going to be 42 years old and, and his, his teammate, you know, won the championship last year and his other teammate, by the way, it could very well be three straight championships with different drivers for Ganassi racing. I looked it up. That's never happened. No team has ever won the championship with three different drivers uh, in consecutive years. Now, Ganassi did it three drivers uh, winning four straight, but Zanardi won back to back. So that wasn't three different drivers in three different in in three seasons. But anyway, uh, I think Scott was asked the question, which and maybe uh, it was a follow up to to something his his friends had had brought up. But no, I don't think anybody really thinks he's he's uh, done or anywhere close to it. But I do think it was uh, it's worth the conversation. He's uh, he's done about everything you can do and and continues to uh to compete at a high level and i think of all the athletes that we've seen i think scott is probably likely take sports car racing out of the equation for the moment i think scott's i've i've felt that scott was the type of guy that he would want to go out on top he he wouldn't want to be a guy who, who maybe hung on too long and i don't think he will i think he will know it and and he'll know it before we know it and and uh, the only thing is, and he said the other day, it could go another five years. So maybe that's uh, that's the appropriate length. But I, I no, I don't think anybody in their right mind thinks Scott Dixon is anywhere close to being uh, not competitive for for a championship and, and able to win races. Yeah, I think the question has been asked, and, and I asked the question in the preseason media chat that we had uh, of Are you thinking about it? And it's not because I think he can't do it. I think he can do this as long as he wants to five years at a minimum nothing has changed in his life uh nothing has changed about his ability to be able to do this it's just a matter of we don't know what his desire is does he have does he have the desire to do something else does he want to sit back does he want to does he feel like he's earned enough money that he's done all he can do or want to do other things and if the question is no i'm not done then he's going to have a spot to do this <laughs> and there's still a bidding war for his services to some extent um you know I, i'm i'm sure there is an open door for, for mclaren to come and join whenever he wants and they'll pay him as much as they possibly can and more than anyone else in indycar can do to match him so good on scott dixon he's one of the good guys and he is uh, certainly one of the greats and, and we're privileged to be watching him still in the prime of his career at this point is he where does he stand in the ability to win a seventh championship this year well 
interestingly, I saw on uh, on on the uh, website that Jack Binion does uh, a list of where the where the I don't hate to bring it up, but it is interesting. Uh, if if uh, the Indy 500 had not been double points, you know, this would be five drivers within 11 points of one another, uh, and Dixon would only be three points out of the championship at this point. Now, that's not the way the the, the point standings are set up. He is 44 points out of the lead. He's tied with Joseph Newgarden uh, for fourth. He's got a couple drivers still to climb over to get Marcus Erickson's uh, level uh, because Erickson leads the championship by 35 over power and 37 over Alex Pelot. So, you know, that's where you start to to wonder, can a, can a driver get all the way to the lead is how many drivers does he have to climb over? So that number has gone down for Scott Dixon. It's really now just two drivers effectively ahead of him before he gets to, to Erickson. And I think Erickson is, is probably, it just feels like he's due for a race that uh, doesn't score a lot of points. And I think this will still tighten up considerably here in the final seven races. But I really like Scott's chances. Uh, I don't know that I would rank him higher than maybe second or third in that pursuit. I think there are a couple others. I still think New Garden's in terrific shape. Uh, with each passing week, I like Marcus Erickson's chances. And, and Will Power is still capable of putting together two or three wins to end the season. Uh, so is Scott Dixon. Uh, the other thing I think I, if I remember the stat right, uh, Scott Dixon has won... I think it's 32, it's either 30 or 32 of his 52 wins have come July, August, September. So he has been a second half of the season guy. So from that standpoint, I think he's probably second or third among my title favorites, among what, what I think really is a top five now, uh, top five list to, uh, to win the championship. I think those five guys, uh, Erickson, Polo, Power, Dixon and Newgarden. I think that's your championship five at this point. So I'd probably put Dixon second or third in the pursuit. Uh, I think that's pretty good from where he, where he was just a couple weeks ago. Yeah, I think I'm on that path too. I, I, I've got in my power rankings for whatever it's worth, and it's worth nothing, uh, Erickson, Newgarden, Dixon, Power, Polo would be feels right and, and feels the, right and the, and the new garden erickson is very close the penskis uh, are the clear favorite coming up this weekend and it's basically another double points race it's two races uh nate ryan in our our call today from nbcsports.com said he had a he said he had a really good 30 minute chat at mid ohio with um alex Pillow, and he said you know unfortunately uh, 95% of that became moot by, by Tuesday last week. But he said one thing that still does apply is that Pelot said that we were not good at the Iowa test as a team. The Penske's were awesome. Others were much better. This is going to be one of those where we just try to get what we can, and top tens might be good. So when there are two races there, that doesn't bode super well. Uh, that doesn't mean that Dixon's not going to do well, was it? I guess it was the race. I, I watched the 2019 race, uh, which was the last single race there. And then I've so far watched the cut down highlight version of the 2020 first race. But in 2019, Dixon got lapped. They were just awful. And then all of a sudden, a caution came out at the right time. He gets back on the lead lap. 
He, everybody pits for most everybody pits for new tires and he finishes second. So you just never know what he might be able to do. I see that same chart about uh, points without double points for the Indy 500. And, you know, I think I saw Marcus maybe reply on social media on this as well. And I don't think this is a knock at Marcus Erickson. I think you could still say that this shows that Marcus Erickson is, is still having a great season. Yes, double points in the Indy 500 significantly helped him. None of us can dispute that. But even without that, he's tied for the championship lead. So I, I think that verifies that Marcus Erickson is the real deal. That even without that, he'd still get the, the points for a win, but no more than any other race, he and Will Power would be tied for the championship lead. Dixon would be three back, then Pelot nine back, and Newgarden 11 back. But that's also pretty good. I know it changes from year to year, but that, that that's um, not a bad endorsement for, eh, we may not really need double points for the Indy 500. What I don't know, is if that calculation includes the points for qualifying. I'm going to guess it does um, because there's no mention of that. And, and I, by the way, I like extra points for qualifying for the Indy 500. There's a lot of effort and focus on that, and I think it should remain. Some think there should even be more in that regard. But that, that's a story for a different time. But uh, the championship, it always does seem to go down to the last race and hoping it's going to go the same here at this point. Um, oh, here's something I'll mention real quick. So our friend Andy Merrick always puts out good graphics on social media and, and kind of um, summarizes quotes. So in the Dixon press conference, Andy actually put a little note down there. Scott had mentioned the Scott Dixon Motorsports Group when he was asked to kind of reflect on how, you know, where it began and where he is now. And Andy said, I'm, I'm not sure I've really heard that mentioned before. And I'd be curious if someone would ask him about it. So I can speak to that just a little bit. And, and to be honest, I don't know if I've ever heard it phrased as the Scott Dixon Motorsports Group. But I think we can give a quick answer here. This is basically just the investment platform that uh, Scott's dad and and other supporters developed for him when he was a teenager, when he was getting into Formula Car racing and trying to get to Europe, trying to get to Formula One, IndyCar, whatever the case may be. And it's no different or in, in the main scheme than what Justin Wilson did and what many other drivers have, what uh, honestly I've set up for, for Jackson and a lot of Formula Car drivers do. There are some others that I don't know if they've really ever said it publicly, so I won't mention their name, but there, there are several IndyCar drivers that have done this same kind of thing. Uh, I know Hunter McElray, Indy Lights driver, has been open that that's how he has been able to move up to Indy Lights. So it's very common, and the way this works is you, you're finding people that are investing in your career and, and generally it's still a bit yeah we want to be along for the ride it's probably not the best smartest investment in most cases because even if someone looks like they have great talent it's still a pretty good long shot and the way it's worded normally is if the driver doesn't make it you don't get it back it's just been thank you for your contribution and then it becomes a tax write-off if the whole thing fails and the driver never makes salary enough to pay it back. But if he does, he's going to owe a pretty decent portion of his salary and endorsements and, and oftentimes other things back to the original investors to the point where if they invested $25,000, they're going to get back 
double, triple, three, sometimes four times that. And there are different levels to whether it's good for 10 years or 25 years or so forth. Uh, but that that's what Scott did to help finance his career at the beginning. So we could address that. So we'll do that very quickly. Now, up next, we get into the drama. We get into the hate cauldron and what's going on with Alex Pillow. And might he want to go to I was hacked on Twitter last Tuesday night? We'll get into that more coming up. Trackside 93.5107.5 The Fan. This is Alex Pillow, and you're listening to Trackside. At Kevin Lee 23 at Kurt Cavan, if you have something for us, maybe you've got a theory on what the grand plan is for Alex Pillow. Um, Sam, make sure we're ch- checking Twitter to make sure no teams have signed the same driver <laughs> or multiple teams or anything like that. So I guess we need to make sure we're keeping up with the Twitter inbox. And thanks to those that did alert us. Oh, about this time last Tuesday, a little bit before that. I think it was about 7.15 when it all broke loose and 7.20 on Tuesday night when we got it done. So we pushed back the show for a day today. Um, You know, Kurt, unfortunately, NASCAR didn't get the notice because they still announced their new event yesterday. They thought we were going to be on Tuesday. But uh, we'll we'll get into Road America and uh, the Chicago Street Race coming up in in just a little bit. So let's get more into Alex Pillow and his future and the future of the number 10 car. After we've had some more time to think about it, you got any more theories or thoughts that we need to know about, about where this is headed or what the motivation has been for the approach that uh, Pillow has taken? Uh, no, I, I think we actually I went back and listened. I thought we handled it pretty well on the fly. Uh, we had to think through all the different elements. Uh, but I thought, man, maybe this is news, the news portion of the show. But Felix Rosenquist, I thought, added something to the story. I'll give you the quotes that he said in the press conference. I don't know if you're ready those but uh you know he said at the moment it doesn't sound like he's going to race at all felix rosenquist said of alex mm-hmm. pillow yes it's up to lawyers and stuff honestly it's not my business at all i think honestly it hasn't really changed anything he's speaking about his future with uh, either formula e or indycar he said this whole deal went down months ago i didn't know all the details of it that i know now but nothing has actually changed, meaning for him, meaning for Rosenquist. I think if Zach was sure I was going to Formula E, he would have said it. I'm going to take that chance. If there's a chance for me to be here next year, I'm going to, Bob, you know, I'm going to continue to be here. Uh, so it's just interesting, I think, that if, in fact, Polo was signed months ago, as Felix Rosenquist now is putting two and two together, because he said he got the news last Tuesday night at 7.15, he was with uh, teammate Pato Award, and they both got it at the same time, and they both you know, were surprised by the information. So I don't think they knew it was Alex Pillow signing. Maybe they had a hunch, but they, they didn't eh. know for sure. Hey, that, I think it's fair to say they didn't you know, know all the details. Anyway, well, uh, I would, I, I'll just finish up by saying I think that, uh, I think that he's right, that if that if they if if Zach Brown was sure that he had Alex Pillow, 
that he would have said Felix is going to Formula E, and that's not happened yet. So when we went round and round with Pato and and Felix uh, in the little media bullpen session, that was originally said, and it was, oh, we found out when you guys did. And then, and then you ask a few follow-up questions, and Felix is uh, very, very honest and open. So then we, you know, I, I, after chatting with him a little longer, no, they knew, but maybe they, they probably certainly didn't know that Pelot was going to send out those tweets. So they found out about that together and they may not have known uh, that it was going to be announced by the team. But eventually I did get out of them that, yeah, we knew that the announcement was coming out. So we weren't totally blindsided by that. Um, but not everything they probably didn't know a hundred percent of all of that. So it's all kind of starting to add up that yeah, Felix knew about this for a little bit, uh, a little while. And, you know, also interesting. So I was starting to get worried because I, I know I've said on this show and I think I've said on TV that Felix has been adamant that he preferred to stay in IndyCar. And I know other media types have said he doesn't really want to say, you know, he's been kind of vague about that. And, and that's generally what the first statement has been. And then I started thinking, did, did he tell me that off the record? Was I not supposed to say that? But now he's been very open again that I'm fighting for my job. You know, that kind of reminds me of one of the things, you know this too, because you get to know the drivers and sometimes you just start chatting. So I have taken to, that's why I carry around that little iPad with me all the time. And I don't always take notes because sometimes you miss things. But I've started to, if I feel like it's an on-the-record conversation, I make sure I pull up that notepad, and, and, and that kind of reminds everyone, all right, he's here as a reporter, not just someone that I've known for a while that I chat with in the paddock. And, and I, was, uh, I feel like Felix was open and honest and, and wanted to say, yeah, I'll go where they want me to go, but this is, if I have a choice, this is where I prefer to stay. And now he's getting even a little bit stronger. But he said that the whole time. I want to make it a tough choice for him. I want to make sure that they know that I can do this job and I'm the best for this job. So back to Palo. Uh, we all, this obviously is what everyone is talking about. And I talked to multiple team owners, multiple drivers, uh, other team managers, other media people, and none of us really can pinpoint exactly what's happened. Normally in these things, you eventually find someone that says, all right, this is what I'm pretty sure it is. And I got a few people that think they know, but even their confidence is not super high. And it's all just theories that we have on this. Here's kind of what I'm coming back to though. I'm fearing that Alex Pillow got bad advice. One theory is the management group has taken control so this his management group is associated with adrian campos and some may know the story that campos basically helped get polo a career funded him he drove for his junior formula teams and then he passed away uh, a year or two ago and one story is that this, so there may have been an investment platform with Alex Pillow as well. And these other people that were involved with Campos realized that they had a real asset on their hands. This young fella just won the IndyCar championship, and he might be someone worthy of getting to Formula One. And if they indeed, and this is, this is still just theories, 
But if they indeed have invested in him, the best way for them to get their money back is to get him either a massive contract in IndyCar, relatively speaking, or to F1, where he could make 10 to $20 million. So maybe what Alex was saying a few weeks ago, that he's not motivated by money, could still be true. But those that have a major say in what he does are motivated by money. I also suspect that they forced out Roger Yasukawa. Roger's not really involved, or he's not as involved anymore. I'm hearing he's still somewhat involved, but he's not managing. And I'm not even sure that was the exact term to begin with, but he had much greater influence last year and before than he does now at this point. Here's the other thing that really concerns me for Alex Pillow. There was a, a, a theory that was debated amongst my friends that, Zach Brown, one theory was Zach Brown had seen the contract and had said, I'll back you. We're going to try to get Chip to let you out. We're willing to do a buyout. Worst case scenario, this happens in our business where you have a non-compete and another television station in town knows that you're not allowed to work for a year, but they want you so bad, they will pay you a salary, but you're just not allowed to appear on television for a year, but you're still getting paid by the new station while you sit on the sidelines. And the hope would be there that McLaren was still going to pay him, even though he may not be able to drive if Chip wanted to hold him to the contract, or Chip would just say, I'm done with this. What do you give me? Let's settle and he can drive for Aero McLaren SP next year and test the F1 car, whatever the case may be. But then, in the Jenna Fryer Associated Press story that came out either on Monday or Tuesday, Zach Brown says he has not seen the contract. And that was another theory that smart friends said that, you know, never have I been asked, these are drivers, have I been asked to show someone my current contract? It's just simply asked of me or my management, are you available? And if Alex Pillow says yes, then that's not Zach Brown's responsibility. It's okay, here's what I will offer you. If that's the case, then Alex Pillow might be in trouble. And the fact that Zach Brown is saying, I haven't seen the contract, might be setting the table for good luck. You said you were available, we're not buying you out, and we're certainly not paying you if you're not going to race. I'm still not buying that because the situations that I talked about with drivers were not, one, they weren't defending IndyCar champions, and two, they weren't being claimed by another team. So reason would say you might want to see that contract unless you wanted to leave yourself some wiggle room to not be on the hook for that. But if, if McLaren felt like, and Zach Brown and Errol McLaren SP felt like there's no concern that Ganassi has no right to him, why so vague? They clearly know there's some sort of an issue on this, so this does not clear anything up at all. Another theory out there is that the F1 wording is key, that that might be the out for him to leave, to sign, and one driver said this, he could just sign uh, a big $2.5 million contract to be an F1 reserve driver and test driver, and then drives the IndyCar for free. I'm not sure I'm buying that either, but that's a theory that's out there. I have to believe Chip has final say on what his drivers can do. They need to ask him if they're going to do a sports car race or anything else. He, he's 
he's their employee and there's no reason for him to include an F1 out clause, whether there was a great possibility of, of him getting to F1 or not. He's a European driver and Chip had all the leverage when Alex Pillow was signed. He didn't have any other options uh, at that point, certainly not any other good options. A final theory is, was there a date missed to exercise the option? Uh, some people say that played into things with Felix Rosenquist. I believe Ganassi was a little bit surprised when he was signed by McLaren, and they thought they controlled his rights, and there was maybe a technicality. I've never confirmed this, but this is kind of one of the, the conversations here, too. I'd be surprised if that's the case in this one. Rosenquist was different. It was in September. You know, this has been going on for a long while, and I I think it's unlikely that that date has already come and gone for Ganassi to be able to do the uh, pick up the option. Uh, he, he didn't need to sign anything either. It's not like Alex Pillow had to sign anything. In most cases, it's if it's a team option, not a mutual option, just the team option, all they need to do is alert the driver the employee and say, we're picking up your option, send them the, the copy of the contract and signed. And what Alex Below likely signed is his signature from the original contract. No more signature is needed because it likely wasn't a mutual option. So the scenario where Alex Below could find himself in trouble is if Chip digs in and there's some conversation out there that Alex Below if this all happens, his career could be in a little bit of danger. Now, that's an extreme thought, but if Chip digs in and forces him to sit next year, depending on the language, maybe the language in the contract says you must provide him a drive in IndyCar, but again, he probably didn't have a whole lot of leverage. He, most drivers are going to sign what Chip Ganassi puts in front of him at that time. You know, and you go back to what you said about Rosenquist saying he didn't think he was going to be driving next year. What if McLaren doesn't hold a spot for him in 24? What if Ganassi still has an option in 24? Some think that's the case. Pretty common when you're signing a, a driver without great credentials to a deal with a big team, that it's all team-loaded, and they can just pick up options as it goes. And then out of all this, let's go back to the tweet. Uh, my best guess is that tweet was made to try to make it untenable to continue with Ganassi to encourage them to accept a buyout or just say, go away. If, if the contract had a loophole in it already that he could get out, there's no reason to send that tweet. I still think that someone posted that tweet for him or wrote it for him and said, you need to do this. So he should go the I'm hacked route. Maybe that's what he should have said this weekend because he clearly wasn't ready to double down when asked the question many different ways he wouldn't say where he's driving next year, who he signed for, or anything. So, uh, and, and then the final thought I guess I would have on this is I, I really suspect that Ganassi thought about benching him last weekend. I don't know if it was going to be based on how the first conversation went and whether they thought they could work together moving on. Or it might also be the, that Chip's attorney said, nah, the, if you want to strengthen your case, that you've held up your end of the deal, you need to keep him in the car at this point. But I really suspect Ryan Hunter Ray was on call and easily could have skipped SRX and would have been there and been able to drive the car and drive it very, very competently. So that's where that stands. What have I missed? 
So the only thing, and I just in, and I like all those theories. Uh, I don't know that we know ultimately which one is closest. I think I think Ganassi does hold the upper hand. I don't know if it's ironclad, but I do think Ganassi is most likely to have the upper hand here. The only thing that I thought about in the midst of this conversation is. And this is just me as a as a journalist and and somebody who knows how these quotes come together. If if Alex Pillow is trying to argue that he was misrepresented by the team in putting that quote out there on his behalf, if he's if he had time from three thirty when Ganassi sent that out, and clearly he didn't you know agree to that quote and didn't say that quote and so forth. And I, I think this is flimsy, but but let me finish it out. That if he thought I was being misrepresented by the team, and my contract says you won't, you know, there, the driver would have some rights about how he was presented to the public. Mm-hmm. That that maybe he saw that, or someone around him saw that as his loophole. I agree with that. Yeah, I think that adds into the theory of. Yeah, maybe even more so than I just want to make them so mad they tell me to go away. But that that makes some sense. Um, could he come back next year? Is this something that could be resolved and they could move on? So if you were asking me that question uh, the other day, I would have – prior to Toronto, I would have said – it's more like the odds would be better that he would return in 2023 to Ganassi than they were that he would drive for Ganassi in Toronto. I, th- I thought there was a really strong chance Ganassi went the other way in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Now that he's made it through Toronto and he makes it through Iowa and some time passes and he realizes, let's just say for the point of your question, that he stuck with Ganassi or, n- or nothing – then I think the odds improve that over the offseason they figure it out and, and he either finishes out 2023 with Ganassi. Uh, I think it's it's more likely as, that he returns as time goes. I agree with that. I think the hardest part was getting through that past weekend and the original what had to be a, a intense anger from Chip Ganassi. Uh, so they moved past that. Depending on how it goes from here, I give it a chance. I still don't think he'll be in that car next year. But agreed, agreed. I, I can't rule it out. I, I do think it's possible, and it probably depends on how the season finishes. He's going to need to win races, and he's going to need to probably beg. He's going to probably have to beg, and and he's going to need to have a good excuse that I got led astray by people that have control over my career. He's going to have to explain it, and Chip's going to have to buy it. And that only happens if, indeed, Zach Brown is backing away and saying, hey, he said he was free. Good luck, son. Uh, We'll talk to you in 24. Um, Now, if McLaren, this is all part of the plan and we're willing to pay him to sit, then, yeah, he'll just sit. So, okay, we'll continue with more of that. And if the 10 is open, we'll get into names and how that might work out. And plenty more coming up on Trackside. Hi, this is Scott Dixon, and you're listening to Trackside on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. 
Before we get back into all the dramas of IndyCar and we talk about the 10 car and we need to talk about the IV doubleheader coming up this weekend. We'll get into all the details and so much more going on uh, away from just two IndyCar races this weekend. Uh, Kurt, some really sad news we learned last weekend with maybe IndyCar fans don't know him, but they sh- at least racing fans should because Bobby East ran what 40 some races in the nascar truck or xfinity series and was a multi-time champion i think in usac but unfortunately his life came to an end way way too early over the weekend it did he was uh, uh stabbed and essentially as i understand it left for dead in in southern california yeah three-time uh usac champion national champion in midgets and, and silver crown and you know obviously his father one of the great you know great builders of of cars uh in um uh, in usac history bob east uh the beast chassis which has dominated uh over the last you know 30 years uh just a really difficult story and you know based in indianapolis that family uh in brownsburg and and so given so much to the community and to the sport uh that i thought it was an important story to to bring up here in in this forum even though we're more of an indycar show but bobby east was just a great race car driver the youngest usac national champion in history and uh Anybody that wins uh, three national championships obviously uh, had earned his stripes. Yep, and I know a lot of people in the racing community very close to Bob East and his family, and we're all thinking of them at this time. All right, we've got more to come. Stay with us. It's Trackside 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Hi, this is Graham Rahal, and you're listening to Trackside on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Hour two of the program and still much to cover. Room for your thoughts. Kevin Lee 23 at Kurt Cavan. But it's time for the Speedrome Circle City Raceway news of the day. Lots of racing coming up over the next week in Indy's two racing destinations, the Indianapolis Speedrome and Circle City Raceway. And this weekend at the Tom Wood Group, Indianapolis Speedrome, powered by Lincoln Tech. It's a doubleheader of racing action with activity both Friday and Saturday night on the historic Fifth Mile Oval. And the world-famous figure eight all capped off on Saturday with a wild and unpredictable Speedrome late model figure eight. Location information, ticket prices, and more available at Speedrome.com. Our news of the day, Kurt, is... What I think is a doubleheader times two because you have the opportunity to enjoy this very special Iowa Speedway weekend, this high V IndyCar race weekend at Iowa Speedway. And then you can get out to the local tracks here in Indianapolis. But if you're going to the race, let's kind of run through the schedule a little bit. It starts on Friday with a free day. So it's like in Detroit. That's a Roger Penske event. And the same applies here. No admission charge. There's an Indy Lights practice at 315, followed by the IndyCar Series practice at 430. The IndyCar practice on Peacock and the Indianapolis IndyCar Radio Network. On Saturday, you've got uh, Indy Lights qualifying at 930. Then back-to-back Peacock events. 1030 is the IndyCar qualifying for race one and two. So they're going to make two hot laps. Lap one will be the posted time for race one. The second lap will be the posted time for race two. And then uh, they'll line those up accordingly. 
the Indy Lights race, 75 laps on Peacock at 12.15, followed by, if you're at, on site, uh, that'll be a Tim McGraw concert at 2 p.m., actually 1 o'clock on the ground because uh, that's central time zone. Then the first of the two IndyCar Series races, the High V's Deals, .com 250. That's 250 laps on Saturday, beginning at 4 o'clock uh, on NBC, followed by Florida Georgia Line concert at 6.30. That's 5.30 local if you're going to stay and watch that concert. And then on Sunday, Gwen Stefani at 12.10 local time, her concert. And then at 3 o'clock Eastern, the IndyCar Series High V salute to Farmers 300, a 300 lap race on NBC. And so that will complete the racing action. And if you're at Iowa Speedway, 515 local time, the Blake Shelton concert. Okay. And then don't forget the next Monday, July 25th, it's Circle City Raceway's turn to host Indiana Sprint Week. The USAC Amsoil National Sprint Cars will be tackling the Circle City quarter mile bull ring for the first time in the history of Indiana. In a sprint week presented by Mastin and Kane Warehousing and Services, Brady Bacon, C.J. Leary, and Justin Grant, and other USAC stars slated to be a part of the racing action, plus UMP Modified. Check out CircleCityRaceway.com for all of the information. So the Free Friday thing is, is kind of cool as well. And then after the IndyCar practice, they're opening up the paddock to fans. There's going to be a track crossing and everyone is welcome to come into the paddock in the evening. And then the autograph session uh, for IndyCar and Indy lights is at six o'clock central time, six o'clock local time. The last practice, the only practice that day ends at five 30. So that's pretty cool. I saw something about too, that high V has um, a promotion where they're, it's sort of like a DoorDash or Uber eats and they have their own sort of delivery system and say you're camping there, I think they might deliver to you. So you might look into that. If you run out of supplies, I want to look into. So if you drink all your beer, will they bring you uh, a new supply of beer if you're camping there? These are questions that need to be asked. And I bet we send one of our reporters out roving this weekend to find all that. And it will probably involve taking uh, a driver's scooter. So that that's going to be cool. I think this will be a fun weekend as well. Make sure you hydrate. Uh, it's it's going to be hot. There's no doubt about that. And we've seen some questions, you know, is there any chance they'll uh, – Mike Stoops, is there serious concern for the weekend regarding scorching temperatures and drivers' well-being, let alone turnout by fans? Yes, there's, there's concern, but I don't know that we're super surprised by this. So it's hot right now, but it I, I think generally speaking – it's probably going to be 90. That's kind of what you're expecting in July in Iowa in the afternoon. So it's four or five degrees hotter than, than we thought it might be. And I think we always hope that maybe we get lucky and it's sunny in 83, but that's kind of the nature of it. It does bring up an interesting debate that we always have about this one. So I'll throw it out here. You know, ideally, Kurt, I think this would be a night race. But it's very difficult to do. First and foremost, if you want to be on NBC, if, if that's important to the promoter, then it needs to be an afternoon race. It, it can be done, but it's very difficult. You know, I know CBS is doing SRX on Saturday nights. It's a little different, too. They also are a 
co-owner of that series. So that's a deal that was struck. I don't know if it's going well enough for it to continue beyond this year or not with ratings around one or so, around a million or so, but maybe. I hope so. I hope so. But generally speaking, it is tough to get a sport on network television on a Saturday or Sunday night unless it's something massive. You know, it's got to be something that is drawing two, three, four million in that range. Maybe it can be possible. Maybe it can be negotiated, but that's kind of how that works. So if you're okay with being on USA or Peacock, they can look into a night race. And then the other thing, Kurt, is it's hard to actually do a true night race in the central time zone in the summertime. You have yeah. to you have to start it at 10 o'clock Eastern time. Yeah, and, and it's difficult if you're doing a double header to do a night race and then, you know, to come back on Sunday and, you know, how late in the day can you do that? You got mm. TV. Um, it's just difficult. I will say the forecast on Sunday looks better. Yes. And Kevin Lee will be in the booth. So you're going to be fine. <laughs> I did draw the good straw this weekend. I was, you know, I, I, Toronto is one of those where it usually feels pretty comfortable and I like being outside. Um, but yes, I, I did draw the good assignment uh, for being in the booth this weekend. But I suspect, well, actually, and I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. So I need to point this out. I was going to say, I, I'm guessing we'll be on the grid and that's really hot in a coat and tie, but we won't be on the grid on Saturday. And this is another reason to make sure you're tuned in. So let's see, Saturday's green flag or race broadcast time is at 3 o'clock Eastern time, 2 o'clock local, 3 o'clock Eastern time, and the command is at 3.01. So it's basically, hi, how are you? Welcome downstairs for the command. And the green flag is at 3.06. So make tell your friends. Make sure you're not thinking it's a 30-minute pre-race. I'll join a little later on. You'll have missed the first 50 laps of the race or so. And then Sunday's race at 3 o'clock Eastern, we do have a little bit more of a pre-race. It's going to, I think, green flag at about 3.30 Eastern. So we'll have a little time. So maybe we're on the grid on Sunday afternoon. So, you know, I'm always torn about those two. I, I love the ability to interview people and set the scene and tell the stories. But from a business standpoint, especially if you're trying to get some casual fans that pop by when you're on network television to stay, it's probably better just to get to the action. And we do the storytelling and set the scene on Peacock during the qualifying and the practice show. So let me ask you, did you say that correctly? Does the Saturday you said comes on the air at three o'clock? Is that not four o'clock Eastern? Yes. So I'm looking at the time zone. I'm confused with time zones. Yes. Okay. So the schedule so, I'm looking at is central time. So Saturday is four o'clock Eastern and green flag green right flag, away. Or 406 green flag. Is that correct? That's correct. I, okay. I want okay. to make sure you said that right. And thank uh, you. The uh, it's key. The easy way I've remembered it is the Saturday race starts an hour later. Sunday, it starts earlier. If you think about people getting home earlier, that's kind of the way I was. I kept it in my mind because I knew the times were different from day to day. So it was a little bit of a challenge to kind of put that into my brain, which one was which. Um, I want to get back. To, uh, speaking of being down on the grid, I wanted to ask you a question about the Toronto um, 
pre-race because you brought out the, the cauldron and you're stirring the pot and <laughs> Alexander Rossi comes walking up. Was that planned or was that coincidence? Because his look on his face was terrific. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I don't know if that was coincidence or not. We actually, we had a couple of plans there. We were working on Zach Brown to come over and I, I don't know if he, Zach Brown is fine. He'll, he'll stir anything. And then I, I think that maybe someone told an associate of Alexander what we were planning and he took it upon himself that uh, I'm your Huckleberry. I'll come over. So I don't think Hinch talked to him and I, I hadn't talked to him, but I think word got to him is probably the best way to describe it. And, and Alex uh, knows what's good for the show and he was helping us yeah, out but that was perfect so i didn't know he was coming i knew that zach brown might come by that was something that we efforted a little bit and i don't think he was opposed to the idea of it it just didn't work out because he you know probably signed another driver or something on the grid while we were while we were doing the pre pre-race show but it was it was classic alexander you know he has uh, you know, he gives mixed signals. Uh, sometimes he's he's difficult uh, when answering a question, whether you're on camera or not, it doesn't matter. He he can be a little uh, difficult to read how he's going to answer the question and sometimes uh, makes a gives such a short answer that you're caught off guard as the as the interviewer. But he has a terrific sense of humor and he does. Uh, and so I, when I saw him walk up, I had the feeling he probably wasn't asked specifically, but he knew about it just enough. And when he saw it out of the corner of his eye, he's like, <laughs> oh, there they are. I can, I can play this game. And uh, yep. that's what makes Alex great. He's, he really has such a great personality. Uh, you and I had a dinner uh, last year with the IU Cancer Center and uh, we brought, you brought Alex and he, he was just terrific. And, and so, you know, sometimes people misread Alex. Uh, he is, he's terrific to be around, but, but he's also good for uh, such a quick, short answer that it catches you off guard with his bluntness. You just got to keep going though. And, and the, the same thing from, so, so Townsend and I organized uh, chats with all the Andretti drivers. And by the way, they were great, not hiding behind anything. Michael Andretti was available. We didn't really have time to, to talk with him because he didn't get there until Sunday. He was at Formula E in New York uh, up until Sunday morning. And other than saying hi to him, that's all we really had a chance. But they were fine. If you want to sit down, you know, they didn't have PR, which, I, by the way, I don't fault PR for being there recording things at times to make sure when things are a little bit delicate that, uh, you know, we've got some backup and how things are, are presented. But in the uh, Rossi chat, so I think that was just, it was mostly just me and Townsend in, in these conversations. You know, the first couple of questions to Alex, pretty short answers. And then the way it always is, I always get great information and intel from Alexander Rossi, no matter what the situation is, I always have. He's always been, when I get my assignments for the weekend, I always like having him in my section because I know he'll give me something that's useful without giving away something that he shouldn't give away. And, you know, obviously the story this past weekend was the, the 10 car and Pelot, but we all felt like, no, this Andretti situation still needs to be discussed. 
And what I started with him about is that just, you know, after the conversation with Michael, do you race any differently? He said, no, no, I'm going to race people the way they race me. And uh, Roman called and said, we need to talk. And, or maybe it was the other way around. I can't remember, but they talked. And Alex said, has your view changed on this at all? And Roman said, no. And Rossi said, mine hasn't either. So there's not a whole lot to say other than, We'll agree to disagree, and what they came to is, let's try to start over. Let's start from zero and not hold any grudges and race each other like teammates, and we'll see where where that goes. You know, and, and Alex did say, you know, I wouldn't have raced Colton Herta that way, but he felt like he's been pushed around a little bit in the past by Grosjean, so when you're on the outside in that situation, I'm not giving it away to you. And then there we go. He said, you know, we're not going to go on vacation, but we can all work together. And uh, that's that. And, you know, one of the things I don't know that we've talked a lot about, but I've been thinking about, and Colton Herter reminded me of it when we were chatting about the situation. He said, you know, the, the lineup that we had last year is the favorite that I've had with Rossi, Hinchcliffe, and Ryan hunter Ray." And those were all people that I felt like I trusted racing with them. And we all shared the intel uh, amazingly together. And I know, I know Hinch had a, a miserable year last year. He had horrible luck. And they weren't super quick at times either. But my feeling is still, though, that a James Hinchcliffe still adds to your program, even if he's having a miserable season, because the guys that are having better seasons still trust what he has to say about the feel of the car and feel like they're getting something from him. And I'm, you know, I'm not the first to say this, but they, they greatly miss the leadership and the experience of Ryan Hunter Ray. It, it probably had served its course to begin with that they both felt like, you know, in a best case scenario, Ryan just finds another ride, but he wasn't able to last year, but, it had been going so poorly, bad luck, everything else involved that, okay, that's where we are. But that that's an impact. I think that's definitely an impact on the Andretti camp this year. So it was interesting to talk with those guys about it for the weekend. Uh, they got through mostly unscathed, and it was all, what, what it was, let's get to this next before we get to the 10 car. You brought this up at the beginning. It's future teammate on teammate contact with Alexander Rossi and Felix Rosenquist. What do we make of that one? Well, I, I was going to add, uh, just as a close on the other uh, story, is I think they greatly miss Ryan Hunter-Ray. I think, yeah. I think of all the great teammates that I've had people describe to me, and there are many. Hinchcliffe, obviously, is a really good teammate. Elio's a really good teammate. But I think Hunter-Ray is one of the unsung great teammates that I've had a chance to work with. And, you know, he, he isn't always uh, – giving with the media he isn't you know he's not the chattiest he doesn't always on camera or in an interview give you what you think you're looking for not just because he's kind of a quiet quiet guy quiet guy by nature but i think from a teammate standpoint he's been terrific and he's been sorely missed uh more so than i think publicly he's been given credit for uh relative to rosenquist and and Rossi, obviously the difference between the Rossi Grosjean incident, as Alex pointed out, and the Rossi uh, Felix incident is that 
Felix was the aggressor and making the pass or attempting the pass, whereas uh, Rossi thought it was Grosjean, you know, on the outside uh, trying to make the pass. Anyway, when it happened, my first reaction was, I don't think it's a penalty. I think that's good hard racing, but I expect a penalty to come because, you know, Felix got there. He got alongside. It didn't look like he turned into him, but I think you have to finish the pass, or at least if you don't finish the pass, I think you have to ensure that both of you get through that space unscathed. That's why I thought there would be a penalty. But I didn't think live, I didn't think it should have been a penalty, and race control confirmed that by saying basically uh, good hard racing. I think that's where I come down on it, too. And ultimately, what I think these street races are, it's a game of chicken. And and both drivers, whether you're the passer or the passee, you're counting on the other guy giving it up. And if neither give it up, there's a pretty good chance you're going to crash. There's just not a lot of room in in these situations. And, you know, that's what we heard on the radio from Rosenquist is that, you know, you can't ever pass this guy. He, doesn't, he just won't give it up. And he's always touching me. He's always touching me. Kind of like it reminds me of the Sato quote, stop touching me on, on track from a Road America incident with, I forget who it was, a couple, three years ago. Um, but if someone won't back out, and it's also, by the way, hard to back out in, in those situations. But when neither backs out, there's going to be contact, and that's when it probably just becomes sort of a 50-50 situation. But, it, um, you know, is the guy making the pass held more accountable? Or is the guy on the outside supposed to understand? The guy on the inside has the position. It's his corner at this point. But if you want to get through, you pretty much have to back out. That's kind of a general feeling as well. So ultimately, you know, that's one of those where – I don't think you can say definitively it's Rosenquist's fault. So I think that probably is the best way just to say, let's race on. And I'm always in favor of that too, because it's easy to say when I have no skin in the game, but I want to encourage passing opportunities. If you start penalizing someone every time there's contact and no one ever tries to pass and you lead to boring races. So they, they I would... tend to kind of work it out themselves. And if you do that too many times, it's going to work against you down the road. So it generally works it out that way. So all good on that front. And then we had some uh, near contacts a few other times, you know, with Erickson and Pelot, uh almost coming back together and actually touching at some point. It's, it, it, it's so difficult just to get through that, th those sections on every restart, which makes it entertaining. Yeah. We were talking about earlier in the show, at least I was, about turn three. And, you know, that's a that's a situation where it's not really a, a natural corner for these guys. You know, you're you're turning, you're climbing, you're bending the car kind of to the left as it is. So it's you know, it's not a coincidence that both of the incidents you just mentioned happen in that spot. That's a it's a very challenging place. And it's it's a little bit unnatural. It's not a natural corner. I mean, it's it's a cool corner. And that's one, one of the reasons why I like it. But it's not a, you know, a naturally flowing uh, like some places on a on a permanent road course. And, 
you know, you just have to, you know, you talk about playing chicken, by the way, I, I didn't think Rosenquist had any chance of pulling off that pass when he came in there into the corner. He was so far back. I was surprised he got alongside in the kind of in the middle of the corner to even get kind of side by side because, and, and their wheels were pretty much lined up, which is why I thought racing incident. Uh, but you know, it was a it was an optimistic move to start with on Rosenquist's part because it's a challenging place to pass. And once they got alongside there, you know, Rossi on the outside and Polo on the outside with Erickson, you know, they don't have a lot of room. That 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 wall on the left hand side doesn't go straight. It kind of bends back toward the right. So a very challenging place. Uh, the guy on the outside is is probably needs to back out because he kind of runs out of room to some extent. Yep. Yep. And we saw that at every level over the weekend that when people went side by side, it often did not work out for the one on the outside. A lot of good tweets are coming in. We'll get to those coming up in just a moment. Uh, I should have opened the show and reminded everyone of this. Next week is Brickyard Week. And I saw that at the airport again today with an IndyCar and a NASCAR cup car there as well. So IndyCar and NASCAR are racing again on the same weekend uh, in just over a week and a half. So IndyCar and Xfinity will race on the road course on Saturday. The Cup Series will race on Sunday. So we'll have shows every night next week. Bonus track sites, seven to eight one-hour shows, Monday through Friday. And then Beyond the Bricks with Jake Query and Mike Thompson from eight until nine. So look for that coming up next week starting monday night and in conjunction with that we're helping out uh and we'll do our show live to tape uh on thursday night the 28th with the brickyard prelude party at prime 47 presented by wise financial northwestern mutual private client group uh that's coming up thursday july 28th there's a vip portion for uh partners and associates and so forth early on in the evening and then the the it's not a dinner it's more of like a cocktail party with really good food from 6 30 until nine o'clock there are still some tickets available i've tweeted a few times you can find it on my twitter at kevin lee 23 tickets are 150 dollars a person benefiting survivors of violence and churn off cosmetic surgery so i hope you can join us we've still got a couple of associate sponsorships left i think 13 of the 15 are gone at this point so thanks to all of those that have jumped on board to help on that front uh honda is going to be joining us as an associate sponsor of the event drexel interiors uh interiors zirkel advisors glenmark construction laura kopetsky triax and caster easton i know danica is going to be donating several cases of her danica rose so we've got that and a lot of cool things and auction items hence is going to help me do the auction some drivers will be joining us and much more, so we'll remind you of that next week. All right, we still need to get into more about Iowa this weekend. Options, if it does indeed get open on the number 10 car for next year, and more coming up on Trackside. Hi, this is Cole Herda, and you're listening to Trackside on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Colton Herta was quite impressive this weekend. Yes, from pole, maybe hoping for a little bit more, but a nice, clean race. I think all things considered, did what he could. 
finished second behind Scott Dixon. So is he going to have a buzz cut coming up this weekend? I guess the hair got in his way in the last stints. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it hadn't heard uh, that happening to drivers in the past, but uh, I don't think Colton's going short, too short anyway. But it was interesting that the the hair got to be a problem during this race. He might. You've heard of football players before getting tackled by their their dreadlocks and say, "Yeah, I got to do what I got to do. I'm going to cut them all off." Uh, so we'll see what Colton shows up with this weekend. Felix Rosenquist uh, gets his first podium with Errol McLaren SP. Hey, a, a much needed. I'm, I'm really happy for for the Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan guys. You know, they're basically the hosts coming up this weekend for the high V IndyCar weekend. So not only did Graham finish fourth, his best finish of the year, Christian Lungard was uh, strong again, finished eighth, equaling the best finish for a rookie this season. Jack Harvey was quicker. Uh, both pit stops, apparently they lost time. We saw one where they lost about six seconds. So the, the kind of nightmare season continues from them. But all things considered, it looks like they're making some progress with that team. Yeah, and a shout-out to uh, those rookies uh, who really ran well. Christian Lungard in the eighth spot, as you mentioned. Uh, David Malukas was 12th. Callum Eilat, 14th. Uh, not the best weekend for hometown Devlin DeFrancesco. De and Kyle Kirkwood struggled down with the contact uh, when Jimmy Johnson uh, spun in his path. But uh, good runs by Lungard, who leads the rookie chase. And Malukas is still within striking distance. Malukas actually was a little better, I think, than, than his 12th place finish. I think they might have lost some spots on pit road or something happened as well because he was he was running still fifth and got kind of shuffled back. But he continues to be quick. Eilat uh, suffered wing damage, and that's when he went through the runoff. But But he was having another good day and almost made the fast six. Once again, so the rookies uh, and DeFrancesco had his best start in his hometown race, qualifying in, in 12th. I want to sneak in a few of the Twitter questions we've received. Joseph Hall says, why not a race on Friday night in a Sunday day race if a doubleheader continues only against MLB on a Friday night? Uh, you could do that if you want to be on USA. You're not going to get network on Friday night. But if if that is an option, that could work. But you could. And, and then you would have some time uh, to repair the cars and so forth. How does that work for camping? You, you need to come up with something else running on Saturday for people that are camping that have action at the track on Saturday. Now, your concerts could help you, um, but you'd almost need like the NASCAR truck series or, or some sort of fairly major event to make that work on Saturday. But it's worth thinking about. It is. I didn't hear any of the questions, so I'm going <laughs> to accidentally got to uh, click myself out of the connection. So I agree with you. How's that? <laughs> Very good. All right. Next item up for bid. And next question. I did screenshots. Oh, by the way, I was talking about, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if this is what I was talking about with delivering food to your area. So maybe don't quote me on that. Maybe I heard that secondhand. No, it's, I went to it's, the high it's true. Car weekend Twitter it's account true. and I'm what? It is true. They will deliver okay. if you're camping. Nice. So are the food trucks something different? I see they have 50 food trucks that are going to be out there. Is that delivering or is that just extra um, opportunities to try different things? 
so I don't know specifically where the food trucks will be located. My sense is if you've been, as you, I'm sure you have, have been behind the main grandstand, that that is probably where most of them are. Cause that's where the fan yep. base is. Uh, that's where, you know, the crowd will be. Uh, I don't expect food trucks in the camping area, but yeah. this is Roger. This is Roger Penske and Bud Dinker putting on an event. They've left no stone unturned. I'm sure. So there is a delivery option. So I'm visiting the campgrounds uh, this weekend for for just a little bit. Um, So I'll I'll look into that. Question from Kurt St. Angelo. I don't understand why IndyCar doesn't guarantee time during qualifying. It does during practice. The series rules or cleanup speed should not dictate the race order. Figure it out. This is a growing topic with in drivers, and it, it is something that is going to need to be considered of when you have these tight tracks uh, and drivers aren't able to get a lap in, and it's becoming very random. You know, the complaints about random in the race through just good or bad luck, if a caution comes out and the pits are closed and you haven't stopped yet, you go from 1st to 18th, it's happening an awful lot. I know you've got a schedule you've got to keep up with, and the theory would be, well, don't sit for so long in qualifying. And that used to be the case, but Kurt, they're really not sitting anymore. No one's sitting. Now, maybe you go out and run the red tires at the beginning, but if it somehow does not, if it does go to completion and you've used your set of reds at the beginning and someone else uses them at the end, just the nature of these track evolutions is it's going to be faster at the end. So, there's a gamble involved. You know, Will Powers' comment was, I got to make sure I'm staying in the six the entire time. And he gave up a lap somewhere, and that's how he didn't advance. But it happened to multiple other drivers this weekend. It's impacted everyone at some point. And I'm not sure that the splitting it into three groups totally solves the issue either. Uh, I need to get deeper in the weeds on that. But I don't know what the answer is, but just the basic answer to it is, it needs to be addressed. I suspect they're going to look into this. I do too. And I think guaranteeing some, some amount of time is uh, necessary. And it, it seems to me that, you know, we had that at one point, but um, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult situation. I'm not, I'm not smart enough uh, to execute that. And so we'll see how, how Jay Fry and the team come up with a, with a solid plan. I suspect they will. I mean, it's a, it can be solved, and and there's you know a lot of these drivers have input, so it'll it'll be good. And there's probably an easier opportunity just stop the clock now that qualifying is not on television. Yes, you are worried about getting up, but as a driver is pointing out to me, hey, aren't we the main events? You know, I, I know it would stink for Road to Indy or the sports car series to be pushed back a little bit. But unless there's a noise ordinance, which in some cases there are, that knock you off at 6 o'clock, and you know, if the spring races you have darkness as a factor, but within reason, you can go an extra 10 minutes in qualifying if you need to to make sure that things are working out. So I, I would say stand by, and this may be addressed at some point moving forward. Chad Bunch at BunchyCB says, okay, dumb question, <laughs> after all these wins, when will Dixon figure out what to do with his sunglasses during the post-race interview? I'm thinking when 65, Chad writes. 
Funny stuff. He uh, he certainly uh, wants to highlight his sunglasses. He has a sunglasses deal. Uh, ding, ding. And with with Oakley. And so he wants to turn, take his sunglasses off and do something with them to spotlight the sunglasses. And he's done a really good job over the years of, of entertaining us with different styles and different colors. Uh, if you care about such things, I should say. But uh, yeah, that's a sunglasses deal. And he's trying to make sure you're focused on it. Mission accomplished. It's masterful. And more than focused on it, I think it's that he, he knows you're not supposed to wear sunglasses in television interviews. It's, it's frowned upon. And I'm sure at some point as a young driver, he was said, no, you need to let people see your eyes. That's, that's, we're not supposed to wear sunglasses on television. That's probably more just decorum as someone working. Uh, but even drivers have always been advised, no, it makes you look standoffish. It makes you look aloof. You want people to be able to look into your eyes. So this is a way to do both. And that's why a lot of guys will just kind of set them on the top of their hat. But I, I think doubly, it lets them be seen on him. And then he's showing people uh, his smile and his eyes and everything else. And he, he moves them atop his hat. So that's done by design. Chaz Schultz writes, traveling to Iowa this weekend, was wondering if weather affects the race Saturday. How late would they reasonably start at that night? Is there any possibility of two races on Sunday? Seems like canceling a race would impact the championship. So there would be a chance of two races on Sunday, maybe, if they had to. Probably not a great deal, but we did that once, what, at Texas with some time in between. But also keep in mind, let's see, in 2019, I think the race started at about 11.15 or 11.30 p.m. Central Time, finished after 1 o'clock. So uh, we'll stay. The, if there's a chance that it's going to stop raining anytime before 1 a.m., I'm going to guess we stay and try to finish it that night. And then otherwise then they probably would look at a, some sort of an option of a doubleheader on Sunday. IndyCar Moose says, not IndyCar, but IMSA announced about the Chicago Street race included IMSA. Any thoughts on how it affects the IMSA calendar in 23? Hashtag Moose loves Road America. So I'm disappointed that Road America is going to lose a cup race. They, they hadn't quite figured out how to make that more entertaining with the length of caution laps and everything along with that. Uh and by the way, this IMSA race is not necessarily a WeatherTech race. So I think, Kurt, this can solve a couple of things. If there's any track on the calendar or wants to be on the calendar that doesn't have a signed deal, then that's kind of out there that, hey, this is what we're offering you at this point, or this is what we're willing to pay from a sanctioning agreement, however it works. Uh, but if you don't like it, we've got another plan. If, if, if you don't want to come to an agreement, we can just put WeatherTech at Chicago that weekend on Saturday with the cup race. But my guess is, because I've not heard this mentioned, my guess is this is going to be one of the single make series. Uh, or maybe it's the Michelin Pilot Challenge that Robbie Wickens races in. But I don't think this is going to be the WeatherTech series for that weekend. And by the way, uh, they haven't started the race yet. So the aldermen are already complaining about things. <laughs> so I suspect it will happen. But just because we've seen in the past, just because a street race is announced doesn't mean that it's actually going to happen. All right, we've got things we've missed we'll get into in just a moment on Trackside. Hi, this is Alexander Rossi, and you're listening to Trackside. 
So, Kurt, in the time we have left, wanted to mention this. Uh, you know, we talked about NASCAR a little bit with Chicago Street Race, and, and they'll be at Pocono this weekend. And for IndyCar fans, I think this is significant. Sage Karam is racing in the Xfinity race. It's not the first time he's been back to Pocono, but it's the first time he's been in a race car at Pocono since he was leading a race, crashed, and just through awful, awful luck, the debris from his car struck and killed Justin Wilson. That's going to be special. And I know NASCAR and NBC on USA this weekend is going to be documenting this a little bit. So uh, everybody should take a look at that if they like. Yeah, be very supportive of, of Sage. You know, he, he, he we often overlook the effects that, uh, you know, someone else's actions has. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, he had no no impact on on how that freak situation occurred. But um, you, you feel for what Sage has gone through. And he's talked about it. It was a very rough period in his life after uh, after Justin passed. So uh, big support for Sage going back this weekend and hope he does well. Yeah, I hope it, it provides some closure. And the Wilson family has been fantastic to Sage Karam. Uh, he's had meetings with Justin's kids and Stefan has been very supportive so so good for sage uh so that that and i think we're going to do something with that on some of our car shows on peacock over the weekend to document that so usa is where you can find the nascar coverage this weekend nbc and here on the radio is where you find the indycar coverage for the races with the uh, high v doubleheader weekend saturday afternoon at four really prompt green flag at 406 sunday afternoon at three. By the way, I saw the USA NASCAR numbers have been really up the last couple of weeks. So that's a good sign that, that sports fans and racing fans are starting to figure out uh, USA is a home for motorsport. So that should help IndyCar moving on in the future for the next time they're on USA, which I think is going to be the uh, uh, worldwide technology uh, gateway race coming up. That's it for us every night next week, seven o'clock on Monday. Thanks to Kurt. Thanks to Sam. I'm Kevin. Podcast up in a bit on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan.